We'll continue to worship our God together this morning, this God that we have prayed to together, this God that we have sung to and sung about. I love the words in that last song that we sang. He indeed is the keeper of all the stars and the friend of the poorest heart. He is the one that we come to to be fed uh, by this morning. Uh, Let me invite you to open with me in your Bibles, not to the book of John, but to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you can be finding verse 17. We do something unusual this morning. We've been working for a long time now through the Gospel of John, but we'll pause for a week in order to look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 11, and the occasion for the change. Really, there are two components that led me to want to do this. Uh, One is that we come this morning to the Lord's table uh, when we're finished studying God's Word together. We do this once a month. Uh, The other is the the simple fact that there are uh, many of our number who have begun attending with us in recent weeks and months. And I think it's a good opportunity for us this morning and a good idea for us to take time to consider what it is that we're doing when we come together as a body to the Lord's table. And we'll do that this morning by hearing from the Apostle Paul in this passage. I'll read in just a moment, beginning at verse 17, but I want to give you something of an outline of what you're about to hear before we read it. Uh, What has been happening is that, and this has been going on since chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul has been systematically responding to a series of questions that the church in Corinth had written to him about. And in this section, he responds to statements, descriptions, questions made to him about their time at the Lord's table, their handling of the Lord's table. Notice, if you would, just look down at verse 34 before we begin to read. He finishes this piece by saying in verse 34, he says, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. And then he moves on to the next topic that they wrote about, now concerning spiritual gifts. So they had asked several questions about the Lord's Supper, about their gathering together in obedience to Christ in this way. And some of those things, he says, I'll I'll deal with those directly in person when I come and see you. But these, these are the clarifications, the critiques the commands, the corrections that he senses a need to give to them right away. And the result is what the Holy Spirit has preserved and given to us to to be faced with this morning. So what we'll hear as we read is this. He's going to describe really three things as he walks through these verses. First, he's going to describe their abuse of the Lord's Supper, which is helpful to us. We get a firsthand counterexample of what has been intended by our Lord when he gave us the table. So verses 17 to 22 will be that, will be a description of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. The second thing you'll notice as we read, we'll go from verses 23 to 26. He will then recount the original institution of it. What was it that our Lord gave us when he gave us this command? And then thirdly, 27 to 34, he ends by pointing out the results of especially a wrong understanding, but the results of our understanding of the Lord's Supper. How we think of it, how we walk through it as a body, has consequences, it has impacts. 
And this is what we'll see. So let me read verses 17 to 34. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Paul says this, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who were genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged." But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The first thing we see, we will find from verses 17 to 22. You can tell in what we read, this, this begins, this portion begins very strongly, doesn't it? Now, Paul has heard enough to be very concerned with what's going on, and he does not hold back as he lovingly brings them correction and brings them back to the right path. Uh, and he starts, though, with a general statement. You see it there in verse 17, a general statement that really conveys the seriousness of what it is he is going into. He says this there. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Imagine being told that by the Apostle Paul in reference to your church gathering. That is quite a critique, isn't it? Not only is there failure in what I'm about to describe, Corinthians, but there's failure to the extent that in this way, it would actually be better for you not to come together 
than to come together and do what you're doing. You're coming together for the worse and not for the better. He says in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. It's interesting how he words that. You you may have noticed as we were reading through the whole thing, he starts here with this, uh, in the first place, but he never makes it to an in the second place. Uh, In the first place encompasses all that he's about to say. Not Not that there's only one failure he describes, but that this is the sphere, this is the house that all of the failures live in, that he is is bringing to their attention. And that sphere is this. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. It's interesting what that second half of the statement accomplishes. And it helps us to to keep in mind what has taken place here in space and time, uh, from Corinth to Paul. A group from the church has written to Paul, giving descriptions, giving some questions, Uh, He has had other correspondences, it would seem, as well. Uh, And the second half of this statement accomplishes something probably very helpful for the body as a whole who are hearing this. There's probably something of a one-sided report that has reached his ears, at least in the opinion of some. Can you imagine how that kind of, of conflicted group arrangement would work when word would get to Paul and he would write back? And he makes clear that he recognizes the possibility, and maybe even in some of the details that were written to him, the likelihood of some exaggeration in the descriptions that he's received about their condition and about their behavior. It it demonstrates his wisdom, I think, his evenness. He's not just swallowing hook, line, and sinker, a one-sided report. The book of Proverbs prohibits us from doing that. It warns us about the danger of doing that. And yet, in everything that he has heard, he's telling them clearly, it is, it is easy for me to spot truth amid these very concerning reports that I've received. And here's the truth that he identifies for them. There are divisions among you. The first chapter of 1 Corinthians mentions divisions too, but it's describing different divisions than the ones he's bringing up here. In 1 Corinthians 1, he's speaking of differences that had to do with loyalty to particular teachers. That's where you might recall his words, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, those sorts of divisions. Those are not the divisions he's speaking about here, though. These are economic divisions, differences uh, that are resulting in differences of, of cooperation, participation, fellowship, stemming from economic differences. And he articulates the details that make that clear Look at verse 21 as he's describing this. He says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, which means this, one goes hungry and another gets drunk. So just think about what is happening at these church gatherings in Corinth. They are coming together. They regularly celebrate what is described in the book of Jude and Jude 12. Peter makes reference to these, these love feasts. As they come together and worship, they celebrate their unity with a meal. And this meal culminates in the celebration of the Lord's Supper in obedience to Christ's command. So this is what they think they're doing. But something as obvious, 
patently wrong given what he said in verse 20. He has to start here by making this claim. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And I think the clear implication is you claim to be sharing in the Lord's Supper. You think you're sharing the Lord's Supper. You think that's what you're doing. That's not what you're doing. And the details that he gives us bear that out in the next couple of verses. Verse 21, here's what's happening as they gather. Those who arrive earlier, verse 21, don't wait for the rest. They simply eat together. And in fact, they feast together. Uh, They take all that they have brought to contribute to the meal, and they uh, intend it ostensibly for the body, and they consume it. They feast to excess. They drink the wine to excess, so that they're actually becoming drunk in these gatherings. That's one result. The other result is that those who arrive later find nothing left for them to eat, so that they wind up going hungry. Now, we know enough about their situation, in terms of their civil arrangement, to understand why this would be the case. The ones who can arrive early are the wealthy of the congregation. They're the ones who have much more flexibility in their schedule. They don't have to wait until they finish a day's work before they can come. So they can come as soon as they, as they want to. And since they're the wealthy, they're the ones bringing most or all of the food for the congregational feast. That's why there's nothing left for those who arrive later. The ones who arrive later to worship, but also to celebrate this meal together in particular, are arriving later because they had to get off of work before arriving. They are the poor. They come to this fellowship meal, and they've not, they don't have the means to provide enough to share, and maybe even not enough for them to eat themselves. They're counting on the generosity of the body. And what do they find when they show up? Oh, sorry, all the food is gone. So the result for them is not only that they go hungry, but verse 22 says another result for them is that they are humiliated. They have shown up to this shared meal, uh, not able to contribute to it, and so they don't eat. Those who have nothing are humiliated. And the actions of the wealthy represent a despising, he says, of the other members of the church. That word in verse 22 translated despise has to do with looking down on them. They have made these divisions, these economic divisions, very plain and obvious in order to show a certain superiority. Now what is this picture that we're hearing from the Apostle Paul? Can you see the clear display of what would be so upsetting to him as he's heard these these reports? This is a picture of partisan living as one cohesive local body of Christ. It's a picture of giving preference to the wealthy among them. It's a picture of callous disregard for others. It's an inherently self-centered, selfish picture. And this, Paul says to them, disqualifies it from being a participation in the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, that speaks to a question of purpose, purpose for the gathering itself. What's the purpose for which they're coming together? Uh, There are many types of workplaces where there's a break room. Uh, When you have your lunch, you go to the break room and you sit and eat your meal together. 
or excuse me, you, you eat your meal there, uh, but oftentimes you're eating by yourself. Even if someone else is there, they're eating their meal, you're eating yours, you're not fellowshipping together. It doesn't signify some fundamental flaw, does it? Some uh, problematic division that exists in that setting. It's relatively natural to that setting. Why does that sort of divisiveness mean that in this case, you're not even accomplishing what you've come together to do? You're not celebrating the Lord's Supper. The difference is a difference of purpose. The purpose there wasn't essentially that of eating and drinking. He says to them in verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? If your goal is to come and eat, do it at home. You can eat at home. That's not the purpose that we were coming and gathering for. This is a shameful display of selfishness and disunity at the very meal that, as we're about to see, the very meal that finds its entire purpose in the proclamation of the singular reality that has brought peace and unity to mankind. That's what's being put on display. And they gather and highlight their divisions and their disunity. And in so doing, they dishonor the Lord's table because they treat it as no different from another meal. Now, what he's going to proceed to do is to tie those failures, that misrepresentation of the Lord's Supper, to its consequences. We'll see that beginning in verse 27. But before he makes that tie, he takes a moment to set before us the alternative to that failure. He sets before us the true celebration that Christ gave to his church. We see his account of it in verses 23 to 26. We read this beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice Paul is not just engaging in the writing of history here, the recounting of history. He is reminding them of this in a particular way to show them what this is all supposed to have been for. He says there at the end, as you eat this bread, and the picture here is that they are regularly sharing these love feasts that I mentioned, but the meal culminated in this sort of a ceremonial moment in which they ate together from a common loaf and drank from a cup. And they did that in a simultaneous way together as an action of remembrance and of, you could say, reenactment, and in obedience to the Lord's command. Now we have, as we look at verses 23 to 26, we have some potential problems, a, a trouble for us potentially, is that the wording of these verses is, is the wording that we read aloud together every month as we celebrate the Lord's table, isn't it? You're at some Uh, on some place in the spectrum toward memorization of those words because we read them, we recite them together every month. But what we have this morning is a real opportunity not to let ourselves gloss over the words 
we have the chance to take note of some things in particular. So I'm thankful for this opportunity that the Lord is giving us. Uh, notice some things here in those verses. Notice how he is emphasizing really two things. He's emphasizing the focus of the event, and he's emphasizing what we could call the purpose or the outcome of the event. What is, the, what is to be the focus of the event as God's people gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper together? The focus. Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body which is for you. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What's the focus? The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the focus. It's on Christ in his, especially in his act of atonement. The focus is on Christ as our provision, as sinners before a holy God. So we look at the bread and we remember that his body has been given, he says here, for you. That's the plural you. And we know that he laid down his life for each of his sheep individually. But it is equally true and terribly significant that we understand that we are to speak and celebrate the realities of his death in terms also of its corporate goal. What was Jesus doing as he shed his blood and as he gave his body? He was securing a bride for himself. He was ransoming a people for himself. And our celebration of the Lord's Supper is a corporate event. We bear witness to it uniquely in our corporate gathering. We don't take the Lord's Supper privately at our homes with our families. We take it when the church of Jesus Christ is gathered together and is making this corporate proclamation. So we look at the bread in that way. We look at the cup. Similarly, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We look at the cup and we recall something in a way very specific. That if not for his blood shed for me, I would still relate to God. Think of it. We don't put it in these terms very often. But this is his point. If not for his blood shed for me, I would still relate to God through my original federal head whose name was Adam, which is to say, I would still bear my own guilt if not for his blood shed for me. Because of Christ's blood, I relate to God through a new covenant and therefore through a new covenant head. Jesus Christ represents me because he has shed his blood. And when I look at the cup, I remember that. And for this reason, because of this focus, our Lord's words are repeated in reference to both elements. We say it twice. Do this in remembrance of me. This is what he bids our focus to be upon. It's a corporate event. It's a celebratory event. But we hear in those words what the focus of it is. It's Jesus. It's our Lord. How different is that? from the picture that we have just heard from the church in Corinth. The second thing he does is he emphasizes not just the focus, but really the purpose of the event, or even the the outcome of it, when we are following the Lord's commands. He says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is a remembering. It is not just a remembering. It is also, he says, a proclamation. As we gather together corporately and eat the bread and drink the cup in this unique way with this particular focus, the result is that what we're doing together as a body is we are proclaiming the Lord's death. And that means something far more than proclaiming the historicity of the event of the Lord's death. That's not the idea, is it? This is a proclamation not just of the fact of his death in history, but it's a proclamation of his death as the only hope for forgiveness for sin. And by implication, it's a confession that it's my only hope for forgiveness of sin. I am proclaiming that in my participation in this, in my union with the body that will together make this profession, make this proclamation. I'm professing, I'm proclaiming to the world, this is true. It's true of me. It's true result, inevitably, of the work of Christ. So part of what I'm proclaiming, then, is my, uh, that participation of myself, that I am a part of the body. That verse 29 will say in a moment that we are cherishing here. I'm part of the body that is sharing in Christ's love at this celebration. I'm proclaiming my participation in that organism that we call the church. A church, a body made up of many members. And it's important to recognize that aspect of the proclamation that we're making. Because it, it helps to achieve... I think Christ's intended purpose with giving us ordinances. We were given as a church two ordinances, and these are visible acts, both of them. The ordinance of baptism and that of the Lord's Supper. They're both visual acts that we engage in, and they're both intended to visualize particular realities. Baptism visualizes the reality of entrance into the number of God's people by faith. It does not bring a person into the number of God's people. It is the visualization of the fact of it. It visualizes my participation in his death and his resurrection. That's what baptism visualizes. Communion points to his death, but it visualizes as well my participation in the life-bringing benefits of Christ. That's what it gives visual to. I share in his body. I live by Christ. So think about the difference. One visualizes the, the initial entrance into God's people. The other visualizes the participation in the benefits enjoyed by God's people. Is there a certain logical order to our participation in those pictures, given what they picture? And I would suggest to you, most certainly there is. This is why, historically, baptism happens first. Sharing in the family meal of the Lord's Supper comes after that. It's, only, it's the only logical ordering that makes sense of what we are visualizing by these things. Now then, all of this comes by way of reminder to them of what Jesus actually gave in the first place when he commanded us to share together in this ordinance, corporately and regularly. It's quite easy then to understand his point that he had made at the outset in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. This is very much not 
what was happening in the mindset and therefore in the behavior of the church at Corinth. If it is, Paul says, if it is what I have just described it to be, then what you are doing is nothing like it. And in fact, you notice, it is achieving the opposite effect. This unique display of the love of Christ that is intended to to showcase the unity of what Christ purchased by his own blood, the result of this misrepresentation in Corinth is that the love of Christ is being insulted and misrepresented. You're just eating. And you're doing it in a way so as to humiliate your own brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. This is just speculation. We don't have a list of the questions that they sent to Paul. But it seems as if, in describing the situation, it seems as if some of them had developed a way to rationalize and explain so as to actually feel potentially good about the way that they were handling this. Maybe they intimate that they're expecting commendation from Paul in something that they're doing. And if that is part of what they're bringing to him, he makes very clear, shall I commend you in this? No. No. And the distinctions that he has made there in verses 23 to 26 make clear why that is not the case. Now, coming into verse 27 now, this is the final piece. Verses 27 to 34, he shifts now. Uh, He relates to them that that unworthiness that he has been describing, that they're engaging in, that unworthiness will bring consequences with it. And in fact, for them, it already has started to. It's quite stunning for us to read, isn't it? Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I imagine part of their question was, Paul, why are we getting sick every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper? What's, this is his verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is excellent. And there are several pieces of this that maybe you can tell. We really, it's very important that we understand what it is he's saying. Uh, I would ask you to look first, we'll we'll jump a bit and come back. Look first at verses 31 and 32. And I'll ask you to start there simply because I I very much think if we get this right in our minds first, some of the the other parts fall into place much more easily. 31 and 32, let me reread this. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I want to suggest to you that is extremely helpful in understanding what he's talking about and what's going on for the church in Corinth. The first way that that helps us is by clarifying the particular situation that Paul is describing. I don't just mean with the Corinthians. I mean how we are to be thinking about the discipline 
and the suffering that he's relating here. Here's what 31 and 32 holds out to us. He is talking here to believers. He is talking about believers who are being chastised by their heavenly father as they misuse the Lord's table and treat it unworthily. One thing that does is make plain that believers can do that, can't they? It's not only an unbeliever in our midst who can misuse the the Lord's table. And when that happens, there can be judgment that comes. And the judgment that comes is not a general uh, wrath of God breaking out against our, our sinfulness. It can't be for the believer, can it? Why can that not be? Those sins have already been atoned for by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Our sins have been wiped away, taken from us as far as the east is from the west. Those who have come to God through faith in Christ, trusting in him alone as their atoning sacrifice, as their hope, as their redeemer, their sins have been washed away, past, present, future. So that what would be happening in this sort of an instance is not that. What it is, Paul says, is it is a corrective chastisement of our careless handling of these symbols. Verse 31 is paramount. It has stunned me this week looking at this. Calvin, John Calvin calls it a remarkable statement. As it says this to us, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Let me share with you what Calvin wrote about this statement. He says, here we have another remarkable statement. That God... That God does not all of a sudden become enraged against us so as to inflict punishment immediately upon our sinning. But that for the most part, it is owing to our own carelessness that he is in a manner constrained to punish us when he sees that we are in a careless and drowsy state and are flattering ourselves in our sin. Hence, we either avert or mitigate impending punishment if we first call ourselves to account, end quote. What we're finding, what Paul is saying is that God is patient and merciful to the lowly. But when his children begin to be lifted up in their own eyes, he very kindly, albeit sometimes painfully, he very kindly brings them back down to a more proper place. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Do you hear the distinction he's making there between what God is doing to the Corinthians in response to this mishandling and the condemnation that awaits the rest of the world? He is drawing a distinction between those two things. This discipline, Paul says, is the fatherly discipline of a place like Hebrews 12, verses 7 to 11. I'll read that to you. The writer to the Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you must endure. God is treating you as sons. When he disciplines Hebrews, God's treating you as sons. He says, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the heart of our Heavenly Father toward his children, his weak, 
sinful children, when they stray, is he brings them back through discipline. So in the Corinthian context here, the, the divine intention is that God is disciplining his children in order to train. And more generally, maybe, disciplining them in order to protect. He's disciplining them as part of his means that he uses to keep his children from falling away. Some have been made sick, he says. Many of you, he uses the word for many. Many have been made sick here as a means of training and leading to repentance. Others have died so that they might progress no farther in their steps toward unbelief. God keeps his children. Now, of course, none of this is to suggest that in the church in Corinth, there aren't also unbelievers there in their midst who are then also mistreating the table, aren't they? And thus are also eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Certainly, I can only... Uh, assume that's happening. The point is, Paul's not speaking about them. He is describing an in-house situation here. This is not, he says, this is not a judgment from God unto damnation. It's a chastisement coming from a place of loving correction. He follows it in verses 33 and 34 with these words. You notice 33? So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Now, we can, we're now set to consider the nature of the failure that he's warning us against here. This is the last thing for us to hear from Paul. And I think it's a good for this to be the place we settle on last, because he gets extremely practical in what he is giving us. He's commending to us a particular sort of behavior that has stemmed from a particular set of priorities and understandings. He's giving us a whole mindset here, leading to a way of behaving as regards specifically the communion table. Which means this is something we can put into practice right now as evangelical fellowship. Think with me about how he describes this here, especially in verses 27, 28, and 29. How does he describe the potential failure that he's holding out. You notice he speaks to it in each of those three verses, but he describes it in several ways. Verse 27, he speaks of eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. Verse 28, he speaks of eating and drinking without examining himself, a person doing this without first examining himself. And in verse 29, he speaks of of eating or drinking without discerning the body. You see those three? Statements. I agree with others who, uh, who argue that at this point, Paul has, has sort of moved, moved beyond the specific failures of the Corinthians. That he's not simply talking about the selfishness that was just on display in Corinth. But that what he's doing is he's used that to move to the more general sphere. And the more general sphere that we have here, you could say it this way, treat it according to its worth. Treat the Lord's table according to its worth. Treat it with reverence. It can be approached unworthily. It it must be approached after examining oneself. The most important of these descriptions 
is probably the hardest to understand, and that's verse 29, when he speaks of the need to discern the body. What does he mean? To eat or drink without discerning the body. There's several, I'll give you uh, some other uh, English translations to this. The New American Standard translates it as uh, not judging the body rightly. The Holman Christian Bible translates it as uh, uh, without recognizing the body. And the Net Bible translates it as uh, without careful regard for the body. That helps in some ways. It doesn't clear everything up. The, the question has to do with the word body, doesn't it? And there are two possible meanings here. And it is very possible that Paul intends both of them. Well, we have, Paul is known for doing that, for using a word in a way that makes us go, well, does he mean this or does he mean this? And then often proceeding to speak to both meanings. He's sneaky, and he, he does this a lot. We just went last year through the, his letter to the Galatians, and we saw him do this many times in Galatians. So I think it's possible he's intending us to bring both of these ideas into our mind with the statement. One of them, one possibility is that he could be referring to, when he says discerning the body, he could be speaking of the body in terms of the body of Christ. So he could be referring to our discerning the fact that he just described above, that these elements symbolize no less precious a thing than the very body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. That makes a lot of sense in the context here too. If I discern what the elements are meant to symbolize and represent, I'm going to treat them with a new and different kind of respect, aren't I? You think of, of other symbols. Think of someone receiving an Olympic medal or the Congressional Medal of Honor. What is that? Well, it's a circular hunk of metal. But because of what it symbolizes, it's much more than that. It is tremendously respected because of what the symbol is representing. So he could be warning that we are to discern the body as we come to the table. We're to come aware of the tremendous significance that's being represented here so that we don't come lightly, so that we don't do the very kind of thing that the Corinthians were doing, eating and drinking, getting drunk, leaving it, portions of the, of the congregation apart from it, unable to share in it. I would do that if I have not discerned the body in that way. He could also be referring, when he speaks of discerning the body, he could be referring to the church as Christ's body. And what's hard is that also fits the context. That's why I think he's doing both of these things. He would be speaking to a recognition that as I join in with God's people, I, I am participating in a union that Christ has purchased with his own blood. I'm part of the body. And I'm to recognize that. So in that sense, they'd be rightly conscious of their actual participation in the realities that they are proclaiming. This is, this, these are, are um, benefits, these are tremendous blessings for a people of whom I belong. Now consider the significance of both of those realities. And one thing you get for sure, this is not simply another instance of eating something or drinking something, is it? No, we're doing what Paul just described. We are making bold claims to each other, to ourselves, to the watching world, every time we gather together at the Lord's table. We're making a claim of real union with Christ. 
And we're making that claim alongside a claim of the power and efficacy of his blood. I call that the gospel. It is very much true that we're actually acting out the gospel as we come to the Lord's table. And what we find here is that every time we come to the table, if what Paul has said to the Corinthians is true, then we're doing one of two things. We are either holding out the body and blood of Christ, extolling their worth, their preciousness to us, their sufficiency to save. We're either doing that or we're holding out the body and blood of Christ and disrespecting them and thus sinning against them. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He's simply saying, he's not speaking of some kind of, uh, that can sound very dramatic and like a special kind of eternal condemnation in Dante's certain level of hell. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, you've come together to honor the Lord and instead you're sinning against the Lord. You're guilty as you stand and handle in an unworthy manner. So what is the call upon the Lord's church in every age concerning the communion table? It is a call to care and thus to prepare. Since the weight of the thing, since its importance in the corporate gathering and care, and as an expression of caring, what we are to do is to prepare ourselves to rightly handle to honor the Lord that it is holding out. We're to prepare. The table is not for perfect people, is it? By show of hands, how many of you would be ready to partake if it was reserved for perfect people? I'll answer quick lest somebody, uh, no one should be raising their hands, right? That's one of the beauties of the church gathered. It's It's a group of people gathered who have By definition, if we belong to God's people, we have first been humbled. We've been shown something about ourselves. Such that we would never raise our hand to to a question like that. We are under no illusion as to our own perfection. Which means that coming worthily, notice that, we're to come in a worthy way. Worthy in no way refers to perfect. So then what does it mean? Worthy refers to That thing that happens when spiritually alive, open-eyed people coming to the table out of the desire to love and proclaim our Lord to one another before the watching world, when we come together to the Lord's table, that's what worthiness is. It entails an awareness of sin, a remorse for sin. It entails a confession of sin. But it is done in a believing context, which means our thoughts are driven in a way that bring us low only in such a way that exalt the Lord Jesus Christ all the more. The more I am aware of my shortcomings and failures, I'm proclaiming his death is sufficient for all of that. The more I'm aware, the more I'm proclaiming his infinite sufficiency. And the more then that I proclaim the kindness and goodness of God who would send his son, the kindness and goodness of our Lord Jesus who would willingly come joyfully 
to lay his life down in such a way. This is what we proclaim and we care and thus we want to prepare. And I'll end in this way. And I suggested this in our church's newsletter um, that we sent out every Friday. I'll just hold out to you three ways that we would be well advised to prepare for the table. One would be repenting of known sin. The command in verse 28 has an, an, an inescapable call to some kind of personal introspection, doesn't it? Let a person examine himself. That must entail some kind of personal introspection. Sharing the Lord's Supper is very much not a personal moment. It's a corporate event and a corporate celebration. But that doesn't mean that there's no personal introspection that takes place beforehand. And as we grow introspective in preparation, again, we aren't searching for, for perfection. What we are looking for, though, is we are searching for high-handed, unrepented of sin in our life. It is unbefitting to be in known, settled, peaceful rebellion against this one that we would proclaim and that to come and share in his table. The table becomes a monthly opportunity for us to repent of known sin, to resume the fight. It doesn't mean to have victory by Sunday over that sin that's been uh, plaguing me for years. I'm committing to resuming that fight, picking up the weapons again that my Lord has given me to fight sin. And in so doing, I'm preparing myself. Another way to prepare for the table is to reconcile with another member, if need be. Now, do you remember Jesus' illustration in Matthew 5? He speaks of a man who's at the temple, about to offer a sacrifice, and remembers that his brother has something against him. And Jesus says that man ought to leave his gift before the altar and go, and first be reconciled with his brother, and afterward return and offer his gift. Uh, doesn't that so match Paul's urging here in 1 Corinthians? Especially given the example of Corinth itself, that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be a self-conscious display of love and unity that only Christ can explain. And so our monthly celebration is a monthly occasion to pursue reconciliation as it's needed and to do it as an act of love for Christ. Thirdly, finally, we can prepare by reflecting on our covenant membership on our, uh, our membership in the new covenant. We spoke of this in verse 25. This cup, he says, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus' death is the new covenant sacrifice, which is part of what makes it the new covenant altogether different and better than the old. If our re relationship with God is represented by the new covenant, that means the realities of the new covenant belong to us. Some of them are described in Jeremiah 31, 27 to 34. Here's some things that are ours as Christians. God's law is known and loved. We actually belong to him. We are his people. We know him. Not exhaustively, of course, but we know him truly. We are forgiven. We used to saying those things. We used to understanding those as benefits that belong to us in Christ. We can even take them for granted at times. But Jeremiah spells out that those things are only possible for us if we relate to God through a particular covenant that he has wrought in his son. And that's the news that he's bringing in Jeremiah 31. God is promising to do this thing. And we stand here now on the other side of the cross, benefactors and members of the new covenant. But let us remember, 
We only have any of that hope and joy and peace because of the covenant that was wrought in the shed blood of Christ. If he doesn't shed his blood, there is no covenant with those covenant benefits. We might pray as we prepare in these ways, even simple prayers of preparation that go something like this. Dear God, thank you that I am no longer represented by our first federal head, Adam, but that by your mercy I am now represented by Jesus Christ. We could achieve the same thing by reflecting on Romans 5. Could I ask you to turn here? We will end with the reading of two verses, Romans 5, verses 18 and 19. And as we're turning, I'll invite the musicians to come forward as well. What's happening in this context is Paul is in the midst of articulating a comparison and relationship between Adam and Christ. That's what he's been doing. And he sums it all up in verses 18 and 19. Listen to this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's important to recognize that the word all is being used in the same sense in those. It has to do with all those who are represented in that situation. As one trespass led to condemnation for all those represented by that man. That's Adam. Now just think of that. In him, we sinned. When he sinned, we sinned in him. We were condemned by the trespass of the one man, Adam. He, and he says, just so, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Jesus' one act of righteousness is such that justification and life come to all those who are represented by him. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Unbelievable. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. My friends, that blessed reality of what is ours as we are found in Christ, represented by Christ, and no longer by Adam, that's the new covenant. And part of what we sit in wonder at as we share together at this table is the fact that we didn't do a thing to deserve that transfer. We did nothing. <clears throat> we did nothing to justify the cost that was required for that transfer. The cost of the shed blood of our Lord. From beginning to end, we are what Romans 9 will call vessels of mercy. And that gives us a lot to think about and a lot to celebrate as we sit together with other vessels of mercy and marvel together at the power of the cross as Christ became sin for us.